Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Shannon, leading us during this time, and I encourage you guys if you don't, if you have a copy of God, God's Word, to turn with me and join me in First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three is we're going to be uh, wrapping up. Uh, the section of 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Tim began last week with verses 1 and 2. We'll read 1 through 6 in just a moment. Or uh, 1 through 6, yes, in just a moment. A brief recap over verses 1 and 2, and then spend the remainder of our time unpacking verses 3 through 6 uh, this morning. I encourage you once again, as you're taking out God's Word, <clears throat> if you don't have a copy of God's Word, use those those Bibles that are in the, in the chairs in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, then that would we would love for that to be a gift from us to you, that you'd be able to take that with you, uh, and that you would be able to mark your Bibles. If you have your Bible on an electronic device, there's no condemnation there. God bless you. Um, as long as you have it with you and, and be able to access it. But uh, we do like to encourage you to know, um, to be able to look and find out that what we're saying is true. We, we don't want you to just blindly believe us. We want you to um, trust what the Scripture says as we hopefully, faithfully uh, uh, exegete or lift out of the text what the Bible actually is saying. And so I encourage you to follow along with us. But as you're taking that out, I encourage you to deal, uh, take the notes that's found in the weekly bulletin, and then we're going to be able to fill those, uh, fill those blanks in and be able to walk through those that hopefully give it a means by which, as you receive the word in which you have conversations with others, you could reproduce uh, that simple outline to others, hopefully. And that's the reason why we develop it that way is to give you a means to be able to Share what you've learned with others, and uh, may, may it be an encouragement to them as well. So, before we read First Peter chapter three, uh, for us just to be mindful this morning, just of the song that was just saying that uh, we need the Lord's help to be able to not only understand what He's teaching us this morning, but to apply what He's teaching us this morning. The dangers of self-deception are so easy uh, that we can. Uh, on a, on a level, agree with Scripture, but then uh, practically not carry it out is so dangerous. And it's, it's true of my life, uh, true of our relationship together as a church family as we desire to make changes and have made changes over these past um, year to try to be more biblical in doing what the Bible has told us to do and then probably upon which we would have agreed what, the, what we're doing now, but we just didn't do it. And so the reality is we want to be faithful doers of the Word and not simply just hearers. And so... Um, may God help us in this. But just to give you some context before we read our section of Scripture, Peter's writing to a variety of individuals, a variety of churches, uh, giving them instructions during a difficult time where they are receiving and experiencing uh, suffering and persecution. And so this is the context upon which these recipients are receiving a letter. They are being oppressed. They're being uh, persecuted for their faith. And so in this he begins to write to them about their massive salvation that they've received, this blessed hope that they've been given through the, the gospel and through being born again. And so as a result of that, come with that marvelous gospel comes expectations. And there's expectations that uh, as he's transformed us and removed us out of this kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light, 
that we should now become holy like our God is holy. He's placed His Spirit within us. We should be becoming transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the same image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, um, but ultimately we should be growing in Christ. And so as a result of that, um, we have the Word of God as the end of chapter 1 begins to give us. And so in that Word, some people receive it. And so those who have been born again, have received that word. And those who did not receive it and rejected that word aren't born again. And so they're going to continue to rebel against the things of God. And in that, right at the end of chapter 2, he says, Now you are now, as a result of receiving this truth, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And then immediately from that, he begins now, as, as these sojourners, these strangers and pilgrims and exiles in this world don't allow you realizing your citizenship is in heaven to not be, have any earthly influence in that. Don't allow this freedom to be a cloak for some form of sin. And that in this, actually, as being exiles and strangers, that we want your conduct, as it says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, purposeful calls, when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the question should be, how do I do that? How do I keep my conduct honorable when they speak evil against me? And the reality is, I need to obey as much as I possibly can in this system. I need to submit. I need to yield. I need to obey. I need to trust God. Yield to the Lord. But even in my attempts to obey, because I'm called to a higher standard... Ultimately, I'm not going to be able to obey in everything. And so because there's going to be this natural tension, as many ways as I can obey, I need to obey. And in the ways that I can't, I need to honor God more than man. And so that's where he then picks up in verse 13 of chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution upon which our section in chapter 3 finds itself. The human institution of marriage, right? Of course, being under attack in our, our day and time. But the reality is that's one of the human institutions. But he begins in verse 13 and following to talk about submitting to the emperor as uh, supreme, not supreme above God, but supreme underneath God. And so we want to obey him, uh, obey our governing authorities. Verse 18, then he moves from the government and being subject, living as a subject in this system, in this institution. We need to be obedient. Now he moves to slaves and a variety of... Um, uh, the, um, population of Rome were slaves, and the majority of the population of Rome were slaves. So as a result of that, they would have them being subject to their masters. So these slaves being subject to those who were, uh, oversee them and, and even own them. And so as a result of that, listen, how do you live in a manner that your conduct would be honorable amongst the Gentiles? Listen, they're going to they're gonna say evil and wicked things about you, but you want to win your brother. And so as a result of that, you need to be subject to your masters and, and that even masters that aren't just aren't good or gentle, but those who are unjust, and even you were going to suffer unjustly. And so in that, he says, and encourages them that they would walk in a manner that would be pleasing to the Lord, and in as many ways as they can obey, to obey those masters. And then when they suffer unjustly, and that means they would suffer for disobeying their, their master in a manner that would be disobedient to Scripture, know that you're, gonna, you're honoring the Lord in that. And that's where then he continues to give an example of Christ, and even Christ's payment for death on the cross. And then he immediately moves in, to now a third institution, which is the marriage. So we've seen uh, employer-employee, which is how we would word it in our time today, uh, relationship, the government relationship, and now the family or marriage relationship. And he begins to walk in verses 1 through 6, and that's what we will read and spend our time in today. So First Peter 3, 
1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your aid. Lord, we do need you. Every hour, and even within this next hour, we we acknowledge our needing of your help. Your spirit would take your word and speak to your children this morning. And I pray your spirit would take your word and even speak to some who are not your children this morning, that their eyes would be opened, their hearts would be turned, their 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 minds will be turned. Their hearts will be transformed. And they would be born again. Lord, I ask that you would do miracles. Lord, where we would agree with our lips, but our hearts are far from you in areas that we will cover this morning. I pray you will help us. You will aid us in joyfully, willingly, Submitting. Putting our time, talents and treasures, our attention, our priorities in the right way, in the right places. Not to be self-deceived. So help us, we ask. We ask in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so last week, Pastor Tim unpacked verses 1 and 2, and he... The marvelous job. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but just in the event that you weren't here, you haven't heard the podcast, just briefly explain a little bit of what's taking place. So once again, now you're seeing the context of wives being asked to submit, to subject herself. So you see in verse 1 there, wives be subject to your own husbands. And that's not something that we like to talk about most often. Um, but that's exactly the same terminology that's been used in verse 13 of chapter 2 and verse 18 of chapter 2 and now in verse 1 of chapter 3 that he's asking wives to, um, to subject themselves, to place themselves under the authority of someone else. Now this was easy in this context because wives and women did not have the rights that we experience and have in our culture today. Similarly to slaves, they did not have a means where they're going to vote. First of all, they were in the rule of a sovereign. They were in the rule of one who is supreme, as we saw in verse 13 of chapter 2, that we should submit submit to the, every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors uh, that he's chosen. But even in that, they, women were not citizens of Rome. And so as a result of that, it was, could be... Far, uh, far oppressed. And so Peter's picking up on difficult situations that individuals find themselves and says, now in this difficult situation, here's how you are to live. Now, yes, we are in a different context. Granted, we're in a context where our government has granted and given rights to employees, right? It's given rights to prisoners, 
has given rights to men and women and children. Not all children, those in the womb, but even many children. And they were good. And I applaud those. And I encourage that to be the case. But the reality is that's not the context here. And it's exactly the context Peter's writing into. And he's writing them to provide them hope. And so in this, he's telling wives that it can be in difficult situations. That they, Even if it's a difficult, potentially even dangerous situations, that wives should be submissive. They should obey their own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, so... What does that mean? It can mean simply a believer who's not walking in the context of Scripture. I don't believe that's primarily the audience that Peter's talking about here, though. I think it need not matter which one. The reality is the wife should respond in the same way regardless. But I believe it's primarily speaking to a, a husband who's not a believer. Let me just share quickly where this, why I believe this. If you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, as he's talking about the Word of God and how the Word of God is to be received and not rejected. Uh, there in verse 4, he talks about, as you come to him, a living stone. So it's 1 Peter 2, verse 4. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. So he's talking about coming to Christ. He says, you yourselves likewise, you yourselves like living stones are being built up a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here's the context. Those who believe in him believe the word. So the honor is for everyone is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, here's the context, not believing in Christ, says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now here it is, verse 8. They stumble because why? They disobey the word. It's the same word, same phrase that's being used here in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. They do not obey the word. They disobey the word. And he says, as they were destined to do. And so here, you, I believe you're seeing the context is a wife living in a difficult situation where she has no rights. She can't appeal to Caesar. She can't appeal to the government. She can't go to the to court systems like they can in our particular day and should if there was abuse taking place. Let me be very clear. They had no place like that to turn. And if she runs away, where's she to turn? In an agricultural community? She owns no property. She has no way to make money. It's naturally going to lead to some form of abuse, further abuse, prostitution, or slavery. And so the instruction is that in this really difficult situation, she should obey her husband, even when her husband is not a believer, does not obey the word. I, I further believe this is the case in First Peter chapter four, verse seventeen. You see similar language there. First Peter four seventeen about not obeying the word it says, "For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, the household of God, right? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God?" Meaning, once again. They disobey the gospel of God. And if they disobey this word, this gospel of God, this good news, they're not a believer. And so I believe it's clear here. And it doesn't matter, but ultimately the reality is the same. But I believe he's giving the most difficult of illustrations to prove his point. Because why? He's writing to believers who are suffering. And if they're suffering, they need encouragement. Yeah, 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 you're giving the, the easiest examples for us to follow. That's not my case. 
And Peter, of all people, should know about suffering. Peter, of all people, should be understand suffering because in Acts chapter 12, it was Peter who was in prison. And the verses that just preceded it, one of his fellow apostles, James, was beheaded. And yet the angel of God set him free in Acts chapter 12. He knows about suffering. His own Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, he saw suffer. And that's the example that he provides and gives in the verses that immediately precede the section that we're in right now. Verses, chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. And so the context is here is that they should yield. They should subject themselves. They should obey their own husbands. Not just anyone, not just any man but their own husbands. And so what's the purpose in that? That they may be one. Their husbands, these who are disobedient to the word, may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. I don't believe that without a word means that women should be silent and should never be seen and never be heard. And some poor misrepresentation of what the text is saying. I believe that they have to hear the gospel, Right? Once again, we just keep allow Peter to speak to himself. Look at verse 24 of chapter 1. Verse 24 of chapter 1. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Her husband isn't going to come to faith in Christ without the gospel being preached to him. I don't care how much good conduct she has. Her conduct alone doesn't give him the words of eternal life. Yet, when her words that speak of this great and glorious gospel are spoken to her husband in love, her actions have to back it up. And that's what he's communicating here. They may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives. I believe it's just simply speaking to that she's not nagging him, completely berating him, constantly just staying on top of him. She's graciously shared the gospel. She's pleaded with him about his need for Christ. And upon which he says, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want another word about this Jesus. I don't want you to talk about him ever again. She's got to develop a different strategy. And she has now shared the gospel with him. And now she must submit to him. He's given her commands to obey. She should be subject to him. And as a result of that, she obeys him. But in that, now my strategy is I'm going to win you without a word. You now know what I believe. And now my conduct is going to be such that you're going to see it. And this is what exactly what been, been, we've been communicating. This whole section has been communicating. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, the day that He actually visits them and they would be born again. And so until that day, she says, I'm going to win you with my actions. I've already tried to win you with my words. Now my actions will follow. And when they see your respectful and pure conduct, that's how the means that they're going to be one. Right? So then how do we do that? What should be the goal? And this is where it can seem like Peter's kind of changing gears, but he's not changing gears at all. He's just staying in context with what, what's in the, the question to be practically. How do I do that, Peter? 
okay, here's the way I would do it. I need to make sure that when my husband comes home, uh, dinner's ready right on the table for him. And then I need to, I need to, I need to make sure I wake up and I put my makeup on and I roll my hair and I make sure that the moment he looks, wakes up, man, I'm, I'm looking the part. I'm outwardly, I'm, I'm looking great and uh, everything's ready for him. And man, if you listen, serving him in that way is fine. But Peter wants to say immediately, and this is why he transitions immediately, that's not the type of beauty that's going to win his heart. Primarily, that's not going to be the beauty that's going to win his heart. And that's why he says, look, verse 3, do not let your adorning be external. All right, so let's talk about that. If we're talking about the adornment of a godly woman, let's begin to walk through what this adorning is. He's telling her what it shouldn't be, so let's, let's walk through this. The definition of adorning, what it means, what does it mean to adorn something? I think sometimes we, we know words, we kind of have a general idea of what words um, mean as far as in their context, but it's sometimes very difficult to actually define them. And so the definition of adorning simply is to make more beautiful or attractive. To make more beautiful or attractive. And so if you're going to win your husband who doesn't believe, how do you do that? How do, you, how do I become more beautiful to him? He doesn't buy into what I'm teaching. His mind, his eyes are blinded to the gospel. His heart's hardened. It's a dead heart to the things of God. And he doesn't respond. And he thinks now that, that my allegiance is separated. We're actually, because I love Jesus Christ, my heart's more for him. I don't even just care about him or just by making sure that I outwardly are doing the things he wants me to do. Man, my heart is I want to be pleasing to him even in my attitude. And not because of him, but because of God, because of Christ. Going back to chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone. I want to honor my husband. Love the brotherhood, the body of Christ. Why? Fear God. It's because of God that I want to do these things. It's because God's the one who told me I should be subject to him. Not just my culture. And so how do, I, how do I become more attractive to him? And Peter says, listen, if you're going to adorn yourself, the word in the Greek literally means to order or arrange. I need to order myself in such a manner that I'm more appealing to him. I need to arrange my life and, and, and the way I look at things in a manner that I'm more attractive to him. How do I do that? So we saw that's the definition of adorning. Now let's look at the admonition regarding adorning. Admonition, this simply means a warning. Let's look at this warning, admonition regarding adorning. It says, do not let your adorning be external. And then he begins to tell them what that might look like. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. So what does that mean? Right there in your notes is what it means. The primary focus of beauty is not on the external person and temporal possessions you want to win him you're going to win him not by primarily focusing your beauty on the external person and temporal possessions that's not mean that you shouldn't desire to be healthy it's not mean that you should never fix your hair listen i'm just working on the inward part right i'm not i haven't showered in like four days but I'm, I'm trying to live godly for you, husband. I mean, I've been praying for you. I, I, listen, take a bath, right? Wear some deodorant, right? Shave, right? This goes either direction, male or female, okay? So both are good. I, you know, so the external person, it shouldn't be the primary focus. Why use those words intentionally? This shouldn't be your primary focus of beauty. It's not the external person. 
and temporal possessions. Now, some have come to take this, this warning, this admonition about the external person, and they're like, listen, you should never braid your hair. When you come to church, you need to look as homely as possible. And there's dangers in the Scripture. First Peter or First Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-12 through is picking up on the same language when we gather with the body of Christ. You shouldn't be coming to church peacocking around, meaning that everyone sees your nice floral arrangement. Right? The imagery there, I think, of Easter. And you come in and you got your big hat like you're going to the Kentucky Derby and like everyone behind you for like eight rows can't see the pastor. Even if it's one of those mega churches and they got the jumbotron, it's like, man, I should have sat in the balcony. I can't see him at all. And those churches, like, it sloped downward, right? So you should be able to see over the person, but it's just so large, you can't see anything. Well, that's the picture here. It's like, you shouldn't be just showing off your wealth. But this isn't what it's communicating here. It's not saying, never braid your hair. If these were absolutes, listen to how it would read. Do not let your adorning be external, primarily. You should never braid your hair should never put on gold jewelry, and you should never, never put on clothing. Right? So clearly, this isn't absolutes because there's a doctrine of clothing. There's a theology of clothing that began in Genesis chapter 3. And when they sinned against God, they realized there was shame and nakedness, and they tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves that would not last. And so God made the first sacrifice, killed an animal, and gave them skins that would last. If God didn't care about clothing, why did he sacrifice an animal? Why did he provide them clothing? Why are we going to be clothed with the, the robes of white linen, of righteousness, as it says in the book of Revelation? So there's this theology of clothing here that's important. And so the reality is that we, we know we shouldn't just walk around nude, and so the, it's, don't, don't read that as absolutes. You should never braid your hair. You should never wear gold jewelry. Gold jewelry. You, should, um, you should never be this clothing you wear as far as your primary focus. And that's exactly what Peter's addressing here. He's, he's saying, listen, I want to bring an admonition about how you spend your time. And so, wives, if you're here and you're trying to win your husband's heart, I'm not saying you shouldn't look nice. You shouldn't try to... Keep yourself up and to exercise and those things. But those aren't your primary things. Beauty is passing. Charm is deceitful. Proverbs 31 communicates to us. What you should be focusing on is the inward person. And so the definition of the ordinary, if I'm going to win my husband. Yes, there's nothing wrong. Hear me be very clear. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have nice at dinner or have nice clothing or try to put, uh, spend time and to adorn yourselves with, with jewelry. There's nothing wrong with those. But if that's the means, you're going to win his heart through him being, seeing your external beauty. And somehow that's going to transform his heart inwardly. Oh, you're grossly mistaken. Because... The world picks up on that and it doesn't work. People's hearts and lives aren't being transformed with the way their bodies look despite how much plastic surgery they, they, they invest in. If it did, let me tell you who should be staying married the longest. Celebrities in Hollywood should never ever get a divorce. I mean, have you seen an award show? They come in in their limos. They walk down the red carpet. 
They're dressed to the nines. They're wearing thousands, if not tens of thousands, potentially if not millions of dollars on their body. And their marriages are in a shambles. You know why? Their primary focus of beauty is on the external person and their temporal possessions. And and Peter says, your husband who's disobedient to the things of God is not going to be one that way. Why, pastor? Because you don't need God. You just need a Gucci bag. Prada shoes. Certain form of makeup. Diamonds and pearls. If you have that, your husband, oh, he'll be one to Christ. And Peter says, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Now look at this exhortation, an exhortation regarding adorning. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now listen, this, these next two uh, this are pregnant with truth. I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can to navigate through this. First one, let your adorning be what? The hidden person of the heart. Uh, Peter, we got a problem. If it's hidden, how's he going to see that? And therein comes the trust in God. You're primarily spending your time on your heart. This, now this isn't uncommon to what we're talking about here. Go back to chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Right before this whole section gets launched out in chapter 12, right? I mean, verse 12. In verse 12 of chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's just imagine there's a husband that's speaking evil of his wife, how she's crazy. She's now worshiping with these crazy Christians and they're having these love feasts and they're, they're cannibals because they're eating Jesus' blood or eating his flesh and they're drinking his blood and all those criticisms that come to the first century church at that particular time. You're crazy. He's speaking against her as an evildoer. And yet, how does she how does she respond? You just need to see the hidden person of my heart, husband. Uh, well, if it's hidden, honey, how do I see that person? Right? But this is exactly what's taking place, that what's going on, what's navigating in her heart. It's not just simply obeying, right? It's obeying with the right attitude. I've got four children. I am a child myself. Not, not technically still. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an adult now. But I'm, I'm a son to my parents, right? So I'm making a phone call today and spending time with uh, family and desiring to in, engage with family regarding Father's Day because I have a father and a mother. And we've heard that illustration, that story, right? So young kids in church at the gathering in the worship service. Young child, and he stands up in the chair. He has to jump up and down the chair, and the mom grabs the child. Shh, Jimmy, Jimmy, sit down. He sits there for a moment. He responds well. All of a sudden, he turns back around, climbs up on the chair, and he's beginning to bounce up in the chair. Jimmy, Jimmy, listen. If you get up one more time, I'm going to take you outside, and you're going to meet Mr. Pow Pow, right? Jimmy sits down. He looks over at his mom. 
And he's just smiling, but he's kind of like that kind of demonic kind of smile, right? You're just like, I think a demon's about to come out of Jimmy right now. She says, what are you smiling about, Jimmy? And he says, I'm seated on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. Now, all of us can be guilty of that. I'm pretty sure I was guilty of that this week, but all of us can be guilty of that. And the struggle there is the hidden person of the heart. No husband, regardless of how beautiful his wife is externally, with temporal possessions, wants her doing things simply because he's a sugar daddy. He's just providing things for her. He wants her to respect him, to love him, to pursue him. And so this is what verse 11 is saying from chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's what's going on in the hidden person of your heart which is where the real battle lies. And that's why you can't just put some makeup on and put some earrings in and braid your hair up real nice and put some fancy clothes on and your marriage is going to be fixed. It won't work. It doesn't work. And so the... He cannot see this hidden person of the heart yet, yet. But he says, but let this adorning, this making yourself more beautiful or attractive, start there. And then with what? It's going to start there with what? With the imperishable beauty. Right? You can get all the plastic surgery you want. You can look amazing. We have some, a few problems. The skin begins to age. And you can only pull it tight for so long. Right? You try to fix things up, prop things up, and then gravity is going to have its toll on us all. Right? It's just the reality. It's, imper- it's, not, it's a perishable beauty. It doesn't last. But there's an imperishable beauty that God has inside of us. And so... What is that? Well, I think it goes back to this word. Once again, go back to chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls. Purified what? What's being cleansed there? Your soul. This inner hidden person of the heart. By your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Your soul's being purified. So that you can be obedient to the truth of God's word. That can actually give you a sincere love for people who aren't your biological family, your brotherly love for the body of Christ. That's crazy. If you've been in church long enough, right, we're messed up people. It's not a simple process, us hanging out, ministering to one another, loving on one another. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been, here it is, been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and embodying word of God. That hidden person of the heart. That imperishable beauty comes from the imperishable word of God. That's been born in you. Spend your time there. Once again, that's not to say you shouldn't get up and shower and shave and all those things. Clean the house, make dinners for your husbands. The reality is primary focus that as you are doing those things. Primary focus and intention should be on the word of God. Am I being obedient to that? And so then it manifests itself. It comes out. It manifests itself and then good works. 
right? And so it says here, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, imperishable beauty of the word, of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. All right, so as God begins to change you from the inside out, two things begin to be viewed and seen. You become gentle and you become quiet. Let's first start with gentle. Gentle is a meekness. A meekness. Not weakness. We'll talk about that next week. Meekness. What does that mean? It means there's power there that's under control. Imagery is of a a bit in the mouth of a horse that's been tamed. That seems negative there, right? We're talking about submission, but here's the reality is, what do we know about a horse? It can trample a human. It has the power to do so. I mean, that's why they, we have rodeos, right? Horses and bulls and things like that. I mean, like, they're powerful animals. They can harm us. But it's been trained. And now it's, that power has been put forth for a useful purpose. And God says, listen, you need to have such a spirit, a gentle, trained spirit in the word of God. That though your tongue could unleash the fires of hell, it won't do it. You can make your husband's life miserable, you won't do it. He is wrong. He might even be an imbecile, but you're not going to show it. Because you've been trained. And that hidden person, the heart. You've invested much more time, talents, and treasures in the imperishable beauty of God's word than you have on the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, and the, the clothing you wear. You've invested in the right things. And so it's brought forth a meekness, a gentleness, and a quiet spirit. Now, this isn't woman don't speak. Like many times the viewpoint of children has been in the past. They should be seen but not heard. Sit there and look nice, but don't talk. It's not at all what it means. The word quiet spirit there could be trans- translated peaceful or tranquil. It's a peaceful spirit. You're at peace. You're at peace. Let me, get, let me go again to where Acts 12, I alluded to it earlier, right? That type of peace that can be found. Acts 12, we begin to walk through the first three verses there. It's where James was beheaded and you find Peter in prison. And it says he was asleep the day before he was going to be martyred. I can, it can be a day before I have a... A meeting I don't want to go to and my stomach will be upset and I'll be in the bathroom all night. And here, this guy's about to die. And he's asleep. You ever had a difficult day ahead of you? Something really important, something intense that you have the next day and man, it's hard for you to be able to sleep? Not Peter. Angel of the Lord has to kick him in the side to wake him up. And they didn't have Ambien back then, right? He wasn't drunk. He didn't pass out in some drunken stupor. He had the peace of God. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And the Spirit was at work. And this is what it's calling for in the life of women. It's not that quiet spirit. It's like, hey, honey, what's wrong? Nothing, I'm fine. 
Not that quiet spirit. Got me? Not that one. That's what we call the cold shoulder, not the quiet spirit. But it's a meekness and a peaceful and tranquil spirit, which is birthed from within. And then what does the Bible say? Which is, in God's sight, is very precious. Let the, let the Bible speak for itself. Let Peter speak for itself and what he's trying to allude to there. Once again, you see this two times in chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 4 of chapter 2. As you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men. So by men, it's rejected. Christ is rejected by men. But in the sight of God, chosen and what? Chosen and what? Precious. Same word it's using here. Talking about the wife. And this type of behavior. Oh, her husband may reject her. It may take a while before him to really begin to, for God to transform his, his, her heart through her words and her works. She may want to give up. You know what? I've tried it. I tried it for like four hours. I'm done. I'm exhausted. It's over. I'm going back to the way I used to live. No. Gentle. Hidden person. Gentle. Quiet spirit. Why? Because even if he doesn't reciprocate, even if he never changes, it's precious in God's sight. You see it again in verse 6 of chapter 2. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. Very similar to what you see in chapter 2, verse 20. As it's talking about the slave who's, been, who's suffering. For what credit, in verse 20 of chapter 2, what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Listen, God sees. Wife, He knows your situation. He knows your husband. He's not, he's not limited by His scope of knowledge or His strength or His ability to transform things. And so this beauty, this imperishable beauty that does not fade with time, that is not limited based upon your age, or it's not limited based upon the limited finances or resources you have. I'd like to be able to wear nicer clothes or fix my hair, or to be able to get my hair done, or be able to wear nice jewelry. That's, that's perishable stuff. You have limited resources, no problem in the kingdom of God. You've got a Bible, you've got time. You got all that you need. That's the exhortation regarding adorning. Now, I want to then lastly look at an illustration regarding adorning. And then he's going to continue to prove the point about being subject, subjecting yourself, submitting, obeying your own husbands, even husbands who aren't Christians. And now he's going to illustrate his point. He's going to illustrate his point. And he's going to illustrate his point with Sarah. Now, if I were to forget, I want you to remind me Sarah's age, right? So somebody just, if I forget, later on I'm about to wrap up the sermon, be like, Sarah's age. No, I won't put this. Remind me here, but it's in my notes, and we're going to track through this. It's important, because I believe this is a whole context. Adorning yourselves, and he picks a situation that he wants to be able to communicate. Submission and obedience, subjecting herself, and this gentle and quiet spirit manifest in her life at a place where she was beyond the age. She was, her flower had already blossomed. 
at verse 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So this illustration he's going to use is about these holy women, right? Now they're adorning themselves. You see adorning in verse 3, verse 4, and now again in verse 5. So how do they used to adorn themselves? By submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. All right, so what does all this mean? Well, Sarah was going to be an example for us, an illustration for us, to us, about what, how you should adorn yourselves. And how this adorning, if you spend time in the hidden person of your heart, with the imperishable word of God before you, and you trust God's word, how it's manifested in your life. So let's walk through this. Sarah was an example, first and foremost, of holiness. Sarah was an example of holiness. This works. We're going to become practical. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. She was called holy. She realized she had to trust. She had to believe in God's word. And as she did, her life was conformed to that. Holy, she was set apart, she was devoted, she was consecrated for a holy, for a, a purpose, for the purposes of God. So Sarah was an example of holiness. Number two, Sarah was an example of trust. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. That hoped in God's where trust is seen and established in this context. That's where her ultimate confidence lies. her ultimate hope and confidence lie not in her abilities not in abraham's abilities but in god's abilities and this will be further proven in just a moment sarah was an example of holiness there was an example of trust there was an example of submission verse five and six for this is how the holy women who hoped in god used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as sarah obeyed abraham Right? So you see submission, submitting there, and obedience. Synonymous terms. I think we're okay in our culture about submission. We're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm for it. The Bible says wives should submit their husbands. But in as far as much, it doesn't actually require me to obey him. And therein lies the problem. I think theologically we're complementarian, but functionally we're not. Many times. If you just talk submission in circles, Pastor Tim and I have been in ministry long enough now. You talk submission immediately. I mean, you're not even a second into this thing. And it's like, let me give you all the caveats of how this could be un, un, unkind, how this could be abusive. How, and I'm like, those are there. I understand. But my caution, of this waging war in, that's against your soul, these passions of the flesh, here's what I want to caution behind that. Are you putting so many... Are you putting so many caveats in there so that you can... It's actually a smokescreen that you're never going to submit. There's bad husbands out there. I'm, I'm one of them. I'm perfect in this. But I'm a Christian. And I don't even understand what the context is talking about here. He's an unbeliever who's completely resistant to the things of God. And he's asking them to submit to him. That type of leader. 
And, they, and listen, she couldn't appeal to, she could appeal to the church for help, but he's not a Christian, so you're not going to excommunicate him out of the church. There's no benefit to him there if he's not a Christian. Is she going to go to the government and Caesar going to help her? Where's she going to turn? She has to hope in God. She trusts in God. And so in this submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. And so as we, it's cautions there, I just want to encourage you to sit down and have conversations in your home. Are you looking for ways to obey your husband? Now with that, men, we're going to talk next week, and Tim alluded to it a little bit last week. Verse 7, you're not without challenge. But are you commanding anything in your home? And I said it, I, I didn't misspeak, commanding anything in your home. I do. I believe the scriptures require it. One of the things I command in my home is we're going to read the Bible together as a family every day. Why? Deuteronomy 6. When I rise up, when I lie down, when I walk about, we're going to talk about the things of God. Children don't get a vote. They're subjected to it. Wife doesn't get a vote. Subjected to it. Why? The Bible says to do it. Now, I can do that in a manner that's profitable. That's helpful. I can live with my wife, we're going to talk about next week, in an understanding way. I can approach it in the right manner, which I pray I do. Or I could just be like, I'm an ogre, I'm an oaf, I'm their leader. So it said, woman, submit. I, mean, I, I could do it in, not in an understanding way, sure. But it doesn't matter the fact that I'm commanded to do it. And so men, are you commanding things that are right to do? And I, I want to caution you then, men, are you, as we're talking about next week, don't command things. Don't just command anything. Don't just command anything. Live with your wives in an understanding way. But she was submissive. She was an example of holiness, of trust, of submission, and humility. That is where it continues on. He continues to drive home this point. By submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Calling him Lord. Now the question is, when did this happen? What do we see in Scripture that that was actually the, ever the case? That, that actually manifested itself and she called him Lord. I don't have any idea. And you think, well, hey, it was that time, Genesis chapter 12, where they were going into Egypt. And he was really afraid that the Egyptians, which was a superpower that day, was going like, to harm him. And so as a result of that, he told her, he said, listen, Sarah, um, you're beautiful. And she was. Externally, she was, she was gorgeous. I mean, the Egyptians figured that out pretty quickly when they showed up. And so, listen, you're gorgeous, and they're going to kill me. What a coward. They're going to kill me if they see how beautiful you are and know you're married to me. And so they're just going to kill me. And so don't tell them you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. Is that the example that it's using here? Absolutely not. Peter's smarter than that. Where's this example? But did she do it? Yes, she did it. But her husband was leading her into sin. That's why Peter's not going to use that example. So where's the example? Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. And this is where 
If you were taking notes and you're like, okay, I have a note here. That I can, I'm always want to yell out in the middle of a sermon. I'm going to yell out, hey, Abraham, Sarah's, Sarah's age, right? This, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point now, so you don't have to yell at me. This is at the point where three men came, angels from God came, and they begin to give information to Abraham. He was going to bear a son. Here, that perishable beauty that Sarah had, she was just so beautiful, so gorgeous. That might have been beginning to fade now. She was postmenopausal, well beyond the time she could bear children. Look what it says here. Pick him in verse 9. It's verse 12 that we're going to really drive on, but verse 9. Genesis 18. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had a women, the way of women had ceased to be with her, to be with Sarah, meaning she couldn't bear children. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Here it is, after I'm worn out. And my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? Hey, pastors, is Peter, what's Peter doing there? I mean, the whole point of this passage isn't that Sarah calls him Lord. The point is, in that passage, beyond physically being able to procreate and to have a child. And yet... They're going to have a child. She's 89. He's 99. Man, God's going to give them a child. The point isn't lordship. Now, I don't believe Peter understands that. So, so what's going on? Here it is. Even though the primary purpose and theme was something else, her natural bent, her everyday posture was, you're my Lord. And it wasn't just what she wore on Sunday morning, right? You're bickering, you're fighting, you're like cats and dogs, the car doors swing open in the church parking lot, all of a sudden you step out with a smile, the door shuts, hey, God bless you, how are you guys? Meanwhile, you've been giving the cold shoulder to your husband, y'all been fighting on the way in. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but the reality is in this picture was, Peter's picking on, up on her natural communication, her natural viewpoint is, Abraham is the Lord of our home. He's the master of this home. I'm in subjection to him. That's what Peter's picking up on. You tracking with me? This natural humility. Whereas, hey, I get it. Emperor, he's the master. He's the Lord. And I'm the subject. In the slavery system, my master is the Lord. And I'm the slave. And I'm in subjection to him. In the home, my husband, he's the Lord. I'm the wife, and I'm in subjection to him. Now, I know that seems, I mean, we press this language a little bit further. That makes you feel uncomfortable. Wives would be the same, similar reaction. Children are not the Lord. They're in subjection to their parents. I know when I say that immediately in here, men, women alike may be like, oh, man, he just said, wives are like children. It's going to be a tough time on Father's Day for him at his house. That's only, if you view that, that's only if you believe that in each of those situations, there's a lack of dignity and equality in the kingdom of God. 
In none of those situations, none of those situations, any of those situations, I say one was inferior to the other or one was not equal with the other. In God's kingdom, in God's equality, they are equal. Galatians chapter 3, there's, in God's kingdom, there's neither male nor female. That doesn't mean there's not roles and responsibilities. We've adopted this world's culture into God's kingdom, and it's messing up how we organize our churches, our homes, and we're, we're receiving just, just, just condemnation for it. And so, in this, there was a humility there. And there should be a humility on Abraham's part. There should be a humility on husband's part. And this is exactly what the scripture is going to teach us next week in verse 7. There's a humility. And this is the same language all throughout the New Testament where it talks about husbands and they're the masters of their homes, the Lord of their homes. I don't have time to unpack all that, but continue on. Just a couple more points here. Sarah was an example of holiness, of trust, of submission, of humility, good conduct. And it says, and you are her children if you do good. If you do good. Like? Sarah, you have exemplify holiness, trust, submission, humility in your good conduct. And I believe it begs back to what we just saw in verse 4. That conduct being a gentle and a quiet spirit. There's an, listen, there's an expectation. There's this, an expectation of a changed life. An expectation of a changed life. Well, Pastor, how does all this come about i mean how i i can just imagine in this i mean it's, if I, I put myself in this situation I'm, I'm i'm trying to honor god and i have an an atheistic and agnostic husband who's combative who's aggressive i'm saying verbally abusive but who was just really resistant antagonistic to the things of god i mean i just see that would be hard be difficult. How does this how does this manifest itself? It manifests itself with courage. That's your last point. Sarah was an example of courage. And the women that he's speaking to, they're going to be children after her. This is imagery of we're children of Abraham, right? Which is where God's chosen people came out of Abraham. And, and so it's the same thing, Sarah. There's been say that women like Sarah, you'll be in God's kingdom as well. If you do good and you do not fear anything that is frightening. Once again, I'm by no means communicating, stay in an abusive relationship. Meaning like just get beat up. Turn the other cheek to the point where an abusive husband will kill you. I, that is not at all what I'm saying. It's something what Scripture would be communicating. What I am communicating is that we, where does this lack of fear come from? I think it's, they're all tied together. I believe this fearlessness, this courage comes from is what actually produces that gentle and quiet spirit, that, that meekness, that power that's under control where she wants to retaliate with everything that is in her. And she's gentle, bridled, 
power under control. That tranquil, peaceful imagery of that Psalm 23 by still waters. It's who she is. She has self-control through the Spirit. She lives in peace through the Spirit. Where's that, where's that come from? It comes from not being afraid of fear of anything that's frightening. Even her husband. Where does, where does that kind of, where does that, have a, that kind of fearlessness come from? I believe it goes back to what we, our second point of, in our examples. It goes back to trust. The godly, the holy women of old who hoped in God. Was hoping in God. That's when you don't know what to do and it's a difficult situation. You don't try to do what Cosmopolitan says or what Shape Magazine says or any other junk you'll find on supermarket stands. That's the world's way of doing it. That's external, right? The braiding of hair, the putting on gold jewelry or clothing you wear. No, you go and you adorn yourself in the hidden person of your heart with the imperishable word of God, which which precedes precedes imperishable imperishable beauty. I implore you, the adornment that your husband longs for, the adornment that your husband longs for, believer or unbeliever alike, is good conduct. You know what Ephesians 5 says as it walks through very similar language about husbands and wives and wives submitting to their husbands in everything. I think it's the same wording that you're seeing here in subjection. You know the two things it asks, it commands wives to do? Submit to their husbands. You know what the other one is? Respect your husbands. You know what your husband longs for more than just a good sex life is what Cosmopolitan and those other magazines would tell you? Respect. Father's Day gift to your husband today. Maybe having some, when the kids are put to bed or whatever, having some honest conversation about how the home is ran. And even if it means, wives, you're obeying or you're challenging him in some scriptures. And I say challenge, you're lovingly encouraging him. Listen, I want to submit. But if I'm honest, there's not much you've asked me to submit to. You're not commanding anything in this house. And be careful how you say it. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a painful thing to hear. But it doesn't mean it's not true. And so I would just encourage. I want to yield. I want to submit and, and, and repent and confess the ways that you're not. And then together, pray and ask God to help you. But desire would be to work on the hidden person of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, thank Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.